grows in the strictest sense. But uh, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 31 of chapter 11. And the Hebrews pastor really breaks it down into three nice, digestible chunks for us. So as a people, we're going to consider these three little, or these three verses and these three photographs. They, they're each uh, sort of broken down by, by faith is the indicator that we're talking about a new thing. Now, what's cool and what you're going to see in, in our time together this morning is you're going to see that these three sort of overlap. And that's why they're treated as a paragraph in Hebrews 11. They sort of fit together. Their, their stories are intertwined, these three faith photographs. Uh, before I read this passage, I'll just give you a map for the morning. I think it's helpful. We're get, we have a little bit different movement this morning because we're looking at three of them. It's not quite as simple, um, but it's not going to be overcomplicated either. But just if you want to jot these passages down, this is where I'll, I'm going to have you turn over the course of the morning. Hebrews 11, which is easy. You're already there. Exodus 14, Joshua 6, Joshua 2, Matthew 13, 2 Corinthians 10, and 1 Corinthians 1 is where we'll land. Hebrews 11, Exodus 14, Joshua 6, Joshua 2, Matthew 13, 2 Corinthians 10, and 1 Corinthians 1. And the map for the morning, that's the scriptural map, but the map for the morning is we're going to look at these three snapshots. We're going to expose them. For those of you who are visiting for the first time or the first of a few times, we traditionally do basically the same thing. We expose a passage of Scripture, and then we seek to apply it, figure out, okay, what does this have to do with us? What does this mean? So we're going to expose these three snapshots, and then we're going to look at three applications for each of these snapshots. Okay, So that's the plan. Let's look at our passage. Beginning in verse 29 of Hebrews 11. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's look at our first by faith and turn to Exodus 14. I'll read the passage, just verse 29 again. And we're going to climb into the context. Think of these three little snapshots, almost like little vignettes. They're not big, major, complicated stories. They're each about a chapter long. The third one is not quite a chapter. So it's not going to be a ton of reading. But we want to climb into the context to make sense of what the Hebrews preacher is saying about each of these little snapshots. Exodus 14. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same were drowned. Let's look at the story. Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. By this point, they've been led out of, the, led out of Egypt, and they're heading toward the Red Sea. That's where you're going to see them land here in the next few minutes. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Pharaoh has said, hey, you guys, good riddance, get out of here. The Passover was the final straw. The mighty acts of judgment called the plagues were quite a beating, but the Passover was final straw. Y'all scram. Get out of here. But God says, I'm going to harden his heart, and I'm going to make him hunt you down. 
I'm going to make him come after you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? What in the world were we thinking letting all our slaves go? They did all our work for us. They made all our bricks. It's kind of nice having them here. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihathiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Let's take this as part of our snapshot. These folks are flat scared. Okay, that's part of the faith window there. Fear is here. These are real people, human beings. You'd be scared too with Pharaoh and these kajillion chariots and Pharaoh's army bearing down on you. They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Remember when they said that? (laughs) For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Moses is such a great example of faith. We saw him last week. Here's another little snapshot of the faith of Moses. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses doesn't know what in the world God's up to by this point. He just knows that he's good and he's going to see him through. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Again, keep in mind, Moses doesn't know what God's up to by this point. Just know he's going to get something done. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. With the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on the Israelites, we have to ask a real honest question. It's hard to see I've asked this question all week in preparing for this sermon. Does it really look like faith? If I'm really honest, I have to say it just looks like fear. It looks like fear compelled them. It looks like fear drove them into the sea across dry land. It looks like fear that they were going to be defeated by Pharaoh's army. If I'm looking at just this passage alone, they look like a bunch of scaredy cats taking their only out. But we have to look at this passage through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11. Thankfully, we have this dynamic book that gives us other lenses to look at old stories to make sense of them. And through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews preacher says this was faith. They were not driven by fear, but they were driven by faith across the Red Sea. This was somehow, whether it looks like it to us or not, this was somehow heroic faith. And through that same lens, we can look at what happened to Pharaoh's army. They didn't just drown. They drowned because of faithlessness, according to this passage. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The implication there is faithlessness meant you drowned. These guys, they stepped across on the same dry ground that God created. But they stepped out into something not one for them. I want you to hear that again. They stepped out into something not one for them, and they perished. Now, one of the things that I'm enjoying about this image, this looking through the, the lens of Hebrews chapter 11, the fact that the Hebrews preacher even mentions this story brings something really cool into focus for us as a church. I love when faith comes into focus and we see something that we've been talking about for the last 11 years. I've heard from folks before that we have a certain lingo at Crosspoint Fellowship. We have certain words. Now, some of those words have been made up, so they're not going to be universal words, I confess. But some of those words are not made up. And one of the things that I've heard people say is you're always talking about walking together or walking in faith or some sort of walking movement. Now, I want you to see faith in focus right here in this passage, look at verse 14. We're going to bring this walking thing into focus. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. 
One of the things I enjoy in this little faith glimpse, faith photograph, is seeing that God does the work of salvation and faith just walks in his work. Faith didn't necessarily part the Red Sea. God did that. By faith, they crossed. By faith, they walked. This thing that we talk about, that we use this language of walking, is a biblical concept. Faith walks. You can think about a familiar passage like James chapter 2, verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And apply it to this passage. Faith by itself, if it does not walk, is going to get clobbered by Pharaoh's army. Faith by itself, if it doesn't continue to walk, is going to drown with Pharaoh's army right in the middle of the Red Sea. Faith walks. We suspected that faith is a three-mile-an-hour journey for some time, and well, here is a really nice picture of that. It's a beauty. Now, one thing I want to call your attention to before we look at the next snapshot in Joshua 6, you can go ahead and be turning there, Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to read a little intermediate passage. It's going to give you a little bit of context. We're going to look at our next snapshot at the walls. But I want to point something out to you. This snapshot, this first one that we just considered, took place at the crossing of the Red Sea. This next one that we're about to look at took place 40 years later. This is the only faith snapshot of the nation of Israel in pre-wilderness, in pre-conquest. This is the only faith snapshot in the wilderness for them, period. We're going to talk about this later in application, but I want you to see and notice the chasm, the 40-year distance. It's not just a chronological distance, but it's also a generational distance. This generation that ended up dying in the wilderness, this was their only faith snapshot, period, that they walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And it wasn't until the conquest, the next generation, 40 years later, that we see this next snapshot. And here's why. Numbers chapter 13, we're going to look at at Joshua chapter 6 in a second, but Numbers chapter 13, the little passage here, is going to give you some context of why it became a 40-year funeral, a 40-year graveyard for the first generation was because of what happened in Numbers chapter 13 and sets the stage for Joshua 6. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. This is early on in the wilderness experience. This is before there was a plan for them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They sent spies over into the promised land. You may remember the story. If you don't, you need to get acquainted with it. Joshua and Caleb were one of the couple of those spies. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land. They found out as much. And they told them, we came to the land which you you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and are very large. They're talking about, for example, Jericho. Jericho is the first city that they're facing in this promised land. This is context for where we're going for this next snapshot. They dwell in the land that's strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants 
of Anak there. Anak. They're giants. They have these big fortified cities and they have these big people living in them. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites and the Jebusites. And the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone out to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. And look at the heading right under that. And the people rebel. This is the point where they believed the the false report of the spies and stopped believing God and eventually said, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the point where God decided, okay, this generation is going to perish over the next 40 years in a 40-year-long funeral procession out here in the wilderness. Okay, that's context for where we are in Joshua chapter 6. Let's go there. Now, Jericho was shut up inside. This is one of these big, massive cities that we were talking about just now that the spies observed 40 years earlier. Big, big city. And Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. One of the things that I appreciated about this story, we fast-forwarded 40 years and now is a mulligan. This is a mulligan for the nation of Israel. This is a do-over what they should have done 40 years earlier when the spies came back and they said, like Caleb and Joshua said, let's go take it. It's ours. This is the mulligan 40 years later. Unfortunately, it's not a mulligan with the same generation because, remember, they're all dead. It's a mulligan with the next generation. And they have another chance to do it right. A do-over 40 years later with the sons and daughters of those who believed the false report. The sons and daughters of those who said, man, let's go back to Egypt. Our children are going to become prey. We're like grasshoppers before these big old tall, scary people. We can't possibly take this on. I can't imagine that there must not have been a tremendous amount of mystique associated with Jericho. Associated with the promised land, if you for 40 years heard from your parents how ominous and terrible it was, and here you step into that land and you come up to Jericho, I can't imagine that those walls didn't seem massive. Jericho is the first city that they face with 40 years worth of story behind it. Highly fortified, massive walls, and giant people inside. It must have been scary. And one of the things that's a little obscure from this passage in Hebrews 11, if you look, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith the walls of Jericho fell. The walls themselves did not have faith. So somebody here has faith. The walls fell passively. Somebody else had faith. So let's continue to read and see who had faith in this story. Who are we really looking at through this lens on this second snapshot? 
You shall march around the city, Israelites, the next generation, 40 years later. The sons and daughters of those who perished because they didn't believe God 40 years earlier. You're going to march around this big, ominous city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Can you, remember what, can you imagine what camp life would be like? Like one trip around Jericho, one silent trip around Jericho, and then come back to camp, eat up some beanie weenies and some, you know, some sort of flatbread or whatever you cook at the campfire. We got to do this again tomorrow. <laughs> Weird. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we, whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make a camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. Now, I think that's taking us far enough into the story. No, let's go on. So the people shouted in verse 20, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. What a great story. Thirteen trips around the city. Six days in a row, once around, and then on the seventh, they make seven trips around the city. Twelve of these trips around the city, there's nothing going on but the worship team leading out front, blowing ram's horns. No conversation, no talk, 
And then on the 13th trip around, with the horns and a hearty shout, the wall comes tumbling down. Man, we may have read this story or heard this story a million times, but let's just climb into it and imagine being an Israelite warrior. Can you imagine there wasn't an Israelite warrior that wasn't thinking, man, this has got to be the dumbest plan I've ever heard in my life. There's no ramming a wall. There's no hitting anything. There's no striking anything, and this wall is just going to fall. Man, that is ridiculous. Did you hear what Joshua said we're supposed to do? We are going to look like a bunch of buffoons. Can you imagine the conversation? The warriors that are marching around the city are thinking, I'm going to be the most ridiculous person in the world. And you know what's, what's even crazier than that? It's not just one time they had to do it. Their faithfulness, despite the fact that it looked stupid, had to go for seven days. And they had to come back to camp every night. And I bet wonder, what in the wide world of sports are we doing? Every day they're left with coming back to the camp I'm thinking, what is Joshua thinking? It must have felt like some of you shepherds who are trying to shepherd your family in family Bible study. It must have felt sort of ridiculous. Is this doing anything? There was a skit years ago. I wasn't a faithful David Letterman watcher, but he may still do it from time to time. as a skit called, Is This Anything? And it must have felt like, is this anything? They do the stupidest things and then decide, okay, this was actually something. They must have wondered, is this anything, this like the Passover that had taken place 40 years earlier where they're killing the lamb that we talked about last week and slathering blood with a hyssop branch on the lentils and doorposts was unprecedented. No wall had ever fallen by people marching silently around it and then shouting at it. You've got to know that these folks had no vision for how this thing was going to go down. I was trying to think about really how ridiculous it must have seemed. I mean, we're going to beat this thing up because, man, we've got to take it in because there's a sweet application point to this. In 1984, one of the first dates I ever went on, it was not Christy because she wouldn't have married me if if I had taken her on this date. I took a gal to a movie called Breaking the Movie. Jeff Ott smiling. I bet you went there. I went, you weren't at that. I bet you saw it too. You probably took a date there too. Uh, it, it, I'm ashamed. I'm confessing publicly for the first time that I saw this movie in 1984. Breaking the movie. There's a famous dance-off in this movie. Then marching around the city made me think this is about as ridiculous as a dance-off. In this dance-off, Turbo and Ozone do battle with like breakdancing against the bad guys. <laughs> what actually made me think about that is I took Daniel to the Guardians of the Galaxy movie earlier this week, and there's a pretty funny little dance-off in there that made me think, man, that is ridiculous. Marching around the wall 13 times, 12 of them silently, grown men led by priests blowing ram's horns. We have got to take this in and realize how ridiculous this must have seemed. I can't imagine the folks at Jericho weren't thinking, what in the world are these crazy people up to? But then God, like he parted the Red Sea, doing the work of salvation at the Red Sea, he does the work of salvation here by destroying the indestructible with feeble and frail and foolish means. He levels the colossal, and the people of God have their first victory in the promised land. It's pretty cool. 
faith by the second generation. Now let's look at our third snapshot. You may have heard a little bit about her already, but let me uh, turn back to Joshua chapter 2. She's mentioned in the passage I just read, a woman named Rahab. And she's referred to throughout our Bible as Rahab the prostitute. It doesn't seem like she ever dropped that, that name. You would think at some point they would, she'd be like, stop calling me that. I'm not doing that anymore, but apparently that stuck with her for life. And, now, and throughout the biblical record, she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. So let's read about her beginning in um, Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who come to you, Rahab, the ones who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. We know what you're up to. This is preceding the fall of the wall. Okay, this is, we're, we, we jumped forward, and then we're jumping just a little bit back to where a new, a new set of spies was sent to Jericho, and Rahab housed the spies. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men laid down, Rahab, watch her. Rahab creeps up there to the roof, and she came up to them, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That happened 40 years earlier. The people of Jericho are talking about what happened at the Red Sea 40 years ago. We heard how how your God dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, hear this from Rahab, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household, 
Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's fast forward back to our story in chapter 6 to see what happened. Verse 22, with the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. Notice there's no husband and no children. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about this snapshot Honestly, I have to tell you, I don't really understand all of it because it doesn't seem to be a real heroic faith thing for me. But looking through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11, we have to trust that it is indeed heroic faith. But that's not the only lens we have to look through. Listen to this lens in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? We've considered that passage this morning already. It's beautiful we're going here when we're looking at faith photographs. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Keep listening. Hang in there with me. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He goes to a real faith stud. Look where he goes next. Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's called a friend of God. It makes sense to see our boy Abraham in there as a visual aid for James to use. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab? Seriously, James? That's who you're going to use as another example on par, at least right here? With the faith of Abraham, you're going to use Rahab the prostitute as the example. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Man, that blew my mind to look at that lens, look through that lens and see Rahab mentioned right there with Abraham. Works that accompany faith, she's going to be an example of that. Her faith, though, it is visible here. I want to show it to you. It is visible in chapter 2, verse 9. Let's look at it. Let's see it up close and personal. I know that the Lord has given you the land. In verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then in verse 11, it says, As soon as we heard about what God did at the Red Sea, our hearts melted, and there's no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This woman is saying, I know that the Lord has given you the land. This woman is saying, the Lord your God is God in the heavens above. This particular woman is saying, the Lord your God is God on the earth beneath. This woman was named after an Egyptian god named Ra. She's named after a foreign god, an Egyptian god named Ra. She is an Amorite. The Amorites worshipped Chemosh, Milcom, Baal, and Ashtoreth, some of the most vile, evil, wicked Worship practices you could possibly imagine went with those foreign gods. This woman was an Amorite saying those things. Man, she came from a people, lived with a people that were evil and vile. One of the things that struck me that's never hit me before, I've never really realized, whenever God was telling Abraham about what's going to happen to his people, we've looked at this passage the last few weeks in Genesis chapter 15. He tells them, no, for certain your offspring are going to be sojourners in a foreign land. They're going to be servants there. You remember those four things? That's the second one. The third, I'm going to bring judgment upon the nation. And then the fourth thing, I'm going to bring them out. Listen to what he said at the end of that paragraph. I'm going to do all this stuff after the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites aren't wicked enough for me to lead my people out of Egypt just yet. I'm going to wait until they're just as vile and dark and wicked as they can possibly be. This woman, Rahab, was one of those people. And for her to say these words, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Oh, that's music. Think about that for a minute. Man, that's faith. In a very, very dark context, she says, The Lord your God is God in the heavens above. Not Chemosh, not Milcom, not Baal, not Ashtoreth. The Lord your God is God on the earth. What a beautiful picture of faith after all. Thankful for the snapshot through Hebrews and James. This woman lived because she believed Yahweh is God. And she welcomed and protected Yahweh's people. Now, let's move to application. Let's start first again with the people. I have a positive application and then a sad, heartbreaking application. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. We'll look at that in a moment. But here's the first positive application. When we're considering the people as they cross the Red Sea. Now, to go back to the first part of the sermon, we exposed and now we're going to look at some application for that. The people of God will face great trials. And we've got to know that God is sovereign and good and in control even over those trials. Who hardened the heart of Pharaoh? God did. 
Who put the sea where it was? God did. Who told them where to camp? God did. God was involved in orchestrating that moment where faith would flourish. Fear and then faith would flourish. The people of God will continue to face great trials. This wasn't a unique situation. The people of God will continue to face great trials. It is part of our journey together, and the people face it together, and the people together walk with God when it seems like there's no remedy because that's what faithful folk do. We walk together when it seems like there's no remedy. We've got to enjoy that God was behind every detail here. And he set up this moment so that he would be glorified and that he could show us what faith looks like. Faith walks. Faith walks. It's a teaching throughout our Bible if you're looking for it. Here's just a snapshot of some passages that I gathered from Romans and and 2 Corinthians. And it's really the first four that I found when I'm doing a search in the epistles. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We say it often when people are baptized. Raised to walk in newness of life because that's what faithful folk do. We walk. It's unimpressive. You don't cover a lot of distance. It's not as immediate and easy as ordering something prime from Amazon It's like gardening. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes dailiness. It takes this relentless movement. And while you may not make a lot of distance in one day, over time, you can cover some ground. Think about Forrest Gump. He just popped in my head. Now, he's running, but running real slow. Think of how far he ran. I know that's a stupid illustration. I I have to apologize for that illustration. Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The best thing that could happen to your view of faith is to begin to see it as a walk. A walk. Sometimes it's a plod. And sometimes there's a little skip in it. But it's always a walk. Faith walks. You see it right here as they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. As God did the saving, they just walked in what he did. Now, here's the sad negative application or the sad kind of heartbreaking application. You're in Matthew 13. You're in the right place, but I'm going to share a passage with you from Hebrews chapter 3. If you've been here for some period of time, you were here during this passage and you were here during the exposition of this passage and you may have thought of this. We looked at one single snapshot of faith by the nation of Israel. One single photo of faith for this entire generation and then it became a 40-year graveyard. One little snapshot. Listen to what happened to these people in Hebrews chapter 3. The same Hebrews preacher that mentions them in the faith Heroes chapter as a moment of faith. In chapter 3 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's when they got the report from the spies. That was the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
in a 40-year-long funeral procession. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And here's, here's the death nail. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And sure enough, they didn't. Every last one of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. Moses on top of Nebo, overlooking the promised land. Man, sure enough, this people... They show us this combination of passages here in Hebrews 3 and over there in Hebrews 11 where he mentions them as faith heroes show us the sad reality that you can have a moment of shining faith and yet prove later to be unfaithful and faithless. I want you to hear that. You can have a moment of shining faith but prove over the long haul to be faithless and unfaithful Man, as a whole, this people proved to be unfaithful, which is what landed them in Babylon and Assyria in exile years later. Man, don't miss this. This people, this generation, did not see the promised land. It sounded familiar to me. I had to check myself. I've talked with Scott about this. I feel like in some ways, in some ways I may be stuck on something. I'm asking the question all the time, lately especially. Why am I here? Why are we here? Does Greenville need another church? Did 11 years ago, Greenville needed another church so people would only need to drive 400 meters instead of 600 meters to the closest church? I mean, those of y'all that live here or live in this county, you know what I'm talking about. Did Greenville really need another church? I'm asking myself the question, just is it just a matter of convenience? Is it a matter of worship style? That there's some Christians out there that just couldn't possibly handle singing from a hymnal, and this is where they would flourish. So here we are. I don't think so. I think we're called here for a specific purpose. And I think the specific purpose that we've called, been called here to is to speak to the stony grounded and the weedy soil hearers. And to speak to a context where those things have become synonymous with good soil. I mentioned this last week, and I didn't read the passage, so we're going to read the passage, and I'm going to explain what I'm talking about here. Look at Matthew chapter 13. And I, I'll tell you, I don't know if there's a more important moment in this sermon than right now. Understanding purpose does a lot for you. It, it's what drives you. When you sort of lose your way or you get fatigued or you, you get disrupted, you go back to purpose. You know, okay, let me remember why I'm here. And y'all understanding your purpose, I think, will be the key to us as a church being potent and effective and salty and bright and aromatic in this context. So please listen to these words in these next few minutes. Matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds, though, fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. 
But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I'm just going to say, when God the Son, the agent of creation, according to Hebrews chapter 1, says, he whoever has some ears better hear this that we should really pay attention to this. It was one of the first sermons, one of the earliest sermons we worked through as a church years and years and years ago, and I have been and continue to be so thankful for it. Now he explains the parable. Let's look at the explanation here in the same chapter beginning in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Satan comes like a big crow and comes down and takes that seed and flies off. It never finds any purchase at all. No doubt about it. Nobody would even disagree with that. We can think about this in terms of folks that you may know of that have heard the, the message of the gospel, but there's not even a glimpse, not even a glimmer of any sort of life there. And we might still hope for them. We might still pine for them as we should, but we might think if they go on to their death, that they're that stony or that that hardened path where the seed never found any purchase whatsoever. And there's no doubt about it. And hopefully, even at that funeral, the pastor's not saying, we believe he's in a better place. We believe he's up there looking down on us smiling. We hope that that pastor would have the guts to say at least, if he could be here right now, he would tell you to believe on Jesus wherever he might be. <laughs> I hope he'd have the guts to do that. But we would believe this guy, where that, it was hit the ground, nothing took purchase. No signs of life at all. That's easy. This was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Let's import Exodus 14 into this. He walks across on dry ground. He sees the dead bodies of the Egyptians laying on the seashore. And he believes God's awesome and Moses is great. Well, only moments earlier, I'm begging for his replacement. And I want to go home to Egypt because I never wanted to leave. Moments earlier, import this story into this. What was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, walks across on dry ground, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while until he hears a report from the spies that there are giants in the land and big walled cities. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. We're done. Give us a new leader. Give us somebody else to lead us. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Man, these two types of soil, the rocky soil and the weedy soil, are differentiated from the good soil. And in our context, we've just combined all of those soils. They're all the same. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, 
okay, Jimmy John, I, I, I was there when he was, when he was saved. And uh, unfortunately, he's not in church anymore, but at least he's saved. And I'm sitting there thinking, how is that any different from one who received the word and immediately received it with joy? And there were some little signs of life there. And he's celebrating Moses and he's celebrating God's victory. But then he's gone. The problem is what makes him hard to see is he might still say, hey, I love Jesus. But he's got no use for Jesus' people. He might even say, oh, I love Jesus' people too. I just don't want to be around them. I love God, but I just don't love his people. According to 1 John, that ain't possible. According to 1 John, those go together. You say you love your brother. You say you love God, but you don't love your brother. You're a liar, is what he says. I'm looking at this story, and I'm going, man, I don't want to read this in every story in our Bible. <laughs> I don't want to like take our context and go, oh, what is but this seems pretty clear. Our neighbors, our friends, our workmates, maybe many of our Family members will say, man, I love Jesus. I had an experience. I crossed the Red Sea, but I've got no use for his people. And I've got no use to walk with him anymore. I don't need the preaching of the word, although it's the thing that God uses to save and grow and equip his people. I don't need the gifts that are expressed in community. I'm doing pretty good by myself. I don't need them expressed on me, and I don't need to express the gifts that I have to other people. So I fly solo as a maverick Christian, and there's no such thing as a renegade Christian. Man, apostasy from the church is apostasy from God. I want you to hear that. Apostasy from the church is apostasy from Jesus. Man, why are we here as a church? We are in the I think we are called here not to be a more convenient location or a, a, a different style to complement all the other styles. I think we've been called here to speak into this epidemic lovingly and truthfully. To speak into this dark, and Satan's good at lying and hiding stuff. This dark that doesn't seem dark issue where most people think they're square with God but they have no faith. They're not still walking. There's no life. They're stony ground hearers like the nation of Israel. Or they're weedy soil hearers that are consumed by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. When I hear about a pastor that preaches a funeral for somebody that they had no fruit, they had no signs of faith, although they had had some, some sort of experience, and that pastor is saying, man, at least they're saved. I was there when they made that decision. Shame on that pastor. It's pitiful. And it's pitiful for churches to be thinking like that about their people or their former people. Let's, let's be specific. About their former notches in their guns that they may have counted at some sort of revival or counted at some sort of report to Hunt Baptist Association. Shame on those churches. What it makes me think of is a guy that's like the churches collectively. And I'm not, I'm not going to caricature. I am going to caricature knowing that this is not uniform. What this feels like to me is like a man whose wife has long since left him. I'm done with you. I got no use for you. I'm out of here. She's long since left him and is stepping out on him, in fact. And yet he sits at home believing she still loves me. 
she still loves me. And frankly, it's sort of pitiful because the evidence proves different. For the churches in this community and for pastors to be preaching funerals like that, at least he's saved sort of comments. That's pitiful. We should know better. He who has ears should hear this. There are different types of soil. People have asked me why I've taken on, why we as a church have taken on some hard and even sort of uncomfortable things in these last few months and years from time to time. Because we're here for a purpose. We're not just a more convenient location here in town. And I hope those other churches that are here in town are here for a purpose too, and we need to see what their purpose is and hear from them. We haven't figured it all out. Here's some humility in this. But here's some calling in this. We're not just a more convenient location. We're here for a purpose to lovingly and truthfully speak into this epidemic. Okay. We're going to spend the most time on that, and that's behind us. The second application for the walls of Jericho, or specifically for the faith of the people at the walls of Jericho. I told you I wanted you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You can turn there and have that in hand. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to turn there myself while you're turning. By faith, God calls us to do things that on the face of it will look as foolish and as fruitless as a dance-off. The reason I mention the dance-off is if you want to pull the video up, just the way I found it is... uh, it was a Google search for famous dance-offs, and there were like 15 of them. And this was one, I, okay, that, there it is. I saw that one. I was there when it went down, and Turbo and Ozone got it done. We look at it, and we know it's ridiculous, but know that God's going to call us to do some things that in the eyes of the world are as ridiculous as a dance-off. But man, it's good though when you realize that. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Oh, man, I get goosebumps just thinking about that. Yeah, the world says that is a silly dance-off, but we look through the lens of the Word and know that marching around a wall silently six times, 12 times, And then on the 13th time, shouting at a big wall is what God will use. Or a raised hand over a sea is what God will use to deliver his people. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Yeah, that's good medicine right there. A little second part of this application under this snapshot of the walls of Jericho coming down. I want you to know and believe that faith moves mountains. I don't think that anyone in here would doubt that. I think that folks in here may may not quite understand what's being said there. And this is a great passage to help bring into focus a faith that moves mountains. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Man, it's hard to not get excited about that. That's like a St. Crispin's Day speech. Yeah! 
Faith can get it done. Faith can get anything done. The problem is some people have taken that passage and other passages and made out like if you can't get anything done, it's because you don't have any faith. If you're sick and you're not going to get well, it's because you don't have enough faith. They take passages like this, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we're healed. And they take that literally to mean that if we're sick and you're not well, you're not getting well, you must not have enough faith. They take Matthew 8, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And they say that that means you're supposed to be healthy and rich and have wind to your back and everything's going to go your way. There's a movement. There's something that's out there right now that's called, been out there for years called the Word Faith Movement. And it's in our backyard. There are folks in this church that have sat under that kind of teaching while they've lost a loved one and scratching their head going, I guess I don't have enough faith. That's heartbreaking. There's some names associated with this bad, harmful teaching. Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. From what I understand, even Robert Tilton is making a comeback in this. Robert Tilton of video fame. You know what video I'm talking about. Hilarious. It's as laughable as this teaching. The problem is it's harmful. It leaves good people that love the Lord feeling like, I must not have enough faith to move this mountain of cancer Forgetting that Paul had a thorn in the flesh that God left with him. Forgetting, frankly, the rest of the Hebrews account in chapter 11. Listen to this. The first part of it, you're like, yeah, the, faith, the word faith movement must be right. Time would, would, would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, yeah, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection... Sounded good so far, right? The word faith movement is like all over that. But then you keep reading. What happens to the faithful? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That may be happening in Iraq right now. Faithful folk. That's harmful stuff this word faith movement is teaching folks. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned. Oh, they're sawn in two. What do you do with that? (laughs) Graphic? Yeah. They're killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, not Cadillacs, not Mercedes, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I don't know what the word faith movement does with those sort of passages, but they're ignoring them, and that movement is harmful, and it's right in our backyard. There are people that are hearing those sort of bad teachings right now. You're being equipped to lovingly speak to that. And say, what about the rest of Hebrews 11? You don't have to make a silly face like I did. You could, what a, brother, sister, family member, <laughs> one whom I love. Let me give you a hug before I tell you this. Mm. What about the rest of Hebrews 11? Man, who did the parting of the Red Sea here? God did. Faith was on the scene, but God parted the waters. Who brought down the wall of Jericho? 
God did on his terms, in his time. Was faith at work? Absolutely. But it was God's sovereignty and God's timing for that mountain to move at that particular moment. Man, faith moves mountains, but it moves those mountains on God's terms because God is still God. That's some bad teaching. Mm. I'm heartbroken for those who've had, who, who are sitting under it or have sat under it and have been crippled with it for years. Okay, the application for Rahab is easy. She feared Yahweh more than she feared the king of Jericho, period. Now, the king of Jericho was more like a mayor. You know, they called him king. You know, he would have been like king of Egypt. But he would have had a lot of influence and a lot of power. But she, like Moses last week, had a better view of an invisible God than she did of a visible king. God was big to her, massive, and the king of Jericho was wee, tiny, tiny little king. God's big, and the king is tiny. Now, one thing I want to share with you. I told you there's one more passage, if you were paying attention, 1 Corinthians 1. We visited this passage during the faith series, and this is about as appropriate place as we could possibly B, to consider it again, because <laughs> all three of these examples so wonderfully illustrate it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is like marching around a big fortified city. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Folly. It's like a dance-off. <laughs> are you serious? Come on. Ozone and what was his name? Thumper. I can't remember what other guy's name is. Come on. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. As I'm going to tell you what, week after week, that's what I struggle with, feeling like this is folly. And then I show up on Sunday if I'm preaching that week, and I look out a bunch of people that say, this ain't folly. I'm hungry, and I need it. <laughs> Preaching's not folly. To the world, though, why would you go listen to that knucklehead for an hour? <laughs> what in the world would he have to say that you would possibly need? You could probably find any of that on the Internet. Or do you really need it? That's what most of our community said, remember? I don't need that. The folly of those, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's not a dance off. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider, consider your calling, brothers. This is written to a church. This is written to the Corinthian church. So we could just as readily say, consider your calling, brothers. Sisters are implied in that. 
Consider your calling sisters, brothers, teenagers, kids. Consider your calling. Not many of you, this is not going to be good news, (laughs) were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. I don't know if we have any princes or princesses or duchesses in here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a beautiful application of this passage. All three of these snapshots are beautiful applications of this passage. When you think about it and you really ask the question, why Israel? Why in the wide world of sports would God, Yahweh, choose Israel to be his people? Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. That sounds like so far you're a special little snowflake. So God loves you and he has a special plan for your life because you're awesome. But then you keep reading. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. There's nothing impressive about you. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Man, why Israel? Why would he choose an unimpressive people? Because he's the same God that inspired Paul to write 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the foolish things that confound the wise. To choose the least likely to succeed. To choose a frail and feeble people that just did nothing throughout our Old Testaments but prove that God is graceful and merciful and has a wonderful sense of humor. Why Israel? Man, so he would get the glory. He'd get lots of glory. Why marching and blowing horns and shouting? How silly. It's just so ridiculous. I want to share another little vignette with you. We're getting near to the end of the morning, but I want you to hear this little story because this connects to something we do every week. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Listen to it. Jehoshaphat. Uh, it's in Second Chronicles chapter 20 if somebody's kind of a visual listener. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. You're going to see a faithful king do something really faithful here in a minute. But there's fear. He's human. He's afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. 
And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's connecting back to Jericho and everything that happened in the conquest. This story is one big storyline that's connected beautifully. If you know the story, you just delight in it. And they've lived in it and it built for you in a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, the temple. And before you, for your name is in this house. And we'll cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Before he's afraid, but now you're hearing prayer is faithful. You're hearing a guy where faith is crowding out fear. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us, by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. Keep watching. Watch how this thing unfolds. It's going to surprise you. It's going to be funny. I hope it's going to be funny to you. It's funny to me. It makes me laugh. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we're powerless against this great horde. Horde that's coming against us. Hear that. <laughs> we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, man. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He is viewing the invisible God here. The hordes are big, man. you got to know they're big and they're bearing down. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. It's not age-graded, apparently. They're all there. The kids aren't often in children's church. They're all, all there. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah. I hate those long lists of hard names. A Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Right? Uh Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle, by the way. Stand firm. You're going to face the hordes, but you're not going to need to fight it. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Now let's see how it goes down. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping. And the Levites, the Kohathites, the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Okay, so some worship. They just, they just bust into worship. And they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me. Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with his people, watch what he does. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord 
and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. He doesn't put like his brave warriors up front. He puts the praise team up front. The praise and worship team is going to lead them into battle. It's like a dance-off. The world, I mean, I wouldn't expect that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites wouldn't be thinking, if they knew at this point what was about to go down, what, how it was unfolding, how the order of march in the battle was, that they wouldn't be thinking, are you kidding me? The praise and worship team is up front? <laughs> I think we're going to be fine. I think I won't even need my big sword. I'll go with my little light one, you know. This is going to be easy. But Jehoshaphat, more than worried about his warriors, is worried about what his praise team is doing. He's worried about how his praise team is dressed, and he's worried about what his praise team is going to say. I want you guys out front, and I want you saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. <laughs> For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came up to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde. And behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that y'all indulge, indulge me let me read that story because that is a beautiful story where the praise team gets up front and gets it done. Do you realize that we do this every single week? When we, have, when we start with praise and worship and song and we're later on during the supper and toward the end where we're singing, think about in the eyes of the world that is really little more than a dance-off. The eyes of the world like, what are they doing? <laughs> they get together and sing at each other. It's so ridiculous. But we know better. Singing isn't mood music to get you ready for this. Singing is taking down strongholds in your life. It's the praise team. That's why our praise team is dedicated in our worship team or our bands. I don't know what we're calling them. Praise and worship teams, you know. That's the kind of the old-fashioned term. They're going, oh, don't say that. Whatever they are. That's why they're vigilant. That's why they're intentional. That's why they're working hard each week, because they see that they are leading us into battle. Taking down stronghold. It's not mood music. We're singing true things back to God. God is doing something. He's getting something done. The strongholds that are in your life right now, the big Jericho walls, the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army, you have your own versions of those things. It might be marital issues. It might be financial issues. It might be whatever they are. Recognize the role that singing true things back to God has in your life. You may not be able to sing a note, but belt it out anyway because you need it. We need it. It's not mood music. God takes the foolish things that confound the wise. And the last thing, man, you got to ask the question, why a prostitute? And why an, an Amorite at that? There were attempts made in early Christianity to give her a different calling. This just made me laugh. I could just see the ancient, you know, early church, like, you know, the whole Rahab thing. i really uncomfortable with her being a prostitute. So can we come up with some other job for her, some other 
you know, identifying things. So Josephus made her Rahab the innkeeper. That's a true story. It was also found in some early Targums, Targum of Jonathan, Rahab the innkeeper. It's more digestible, you know. I kind of like that better than Rahab the pea. Uh, there was another one, another early ancient, ancient, I say, within the last couple of centuries, commentary that made her a seller of food. Rahab the food seller. Grocer, we might call her. I mean, you have to ask the question, why not Rahab the baker? Or why not, why not Rahab the hairstylist? I'm not being sexist here and giving female jobs. Typical female. Typical female. Rahab the seamstress. Man, you got to think about this. It, the fact that, that she was a prostitute, that she ended up being one that God uses not only to protect his people, but that God used in a different way. Matthew chapter 1 gives the genealogy of Jesus. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. I, I suspect you say the L in his name, not like salmon. Don't call him a fish. Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. You may know who Boaz is. Boaz is a stud, man. He's the kinsman redeemer. What a beautiful story of Boaz in the book of Ruth. Salmon, the father. Salmon, the father. Of, I called him Salmon. <laughs> Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. By Rahab. Oh, does that give you hope? That's hope for the harlots right there, buddy. Golly. Ah, it gives me hope that God can use anybody. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that this woman lived the life that she must have lived, and yet God set his love on her. He used her to protect his people. And then she became the mother of a faith hero named Boaz. Man, this should give those who come from sordid pasts hope. And frankly, it should give every single one of us hope that he indeed chooses the foolish things to confound the wise, the frail, the feeble, and the least likely so that he will get the glory. Are you enjoying God right now as we think about him using Rahab? What a great God. Mm. We're going to get ready for our supper, and I'm going to share a passage with you before we take the supper. We have staff meetings each week on Tuesdays, and uh, staff meeting this, each staff meeting we talk about the sermon for just for a moment. And I hear their thoughts, and Annie Wetzel shared something in our staff meeting that just, man, I needed to hear it. You may find yourself, I think I found myself, in the faith chapter, sort of kind of figuring out where you sit. You know, you see these really top-tier faith guys like Abraham, Moses, Joseph, you know, real faith studs. And then down there, down at the bottom, you see guys like Samson. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, how did he make the list, you know? And then you see Israel. Oh, wow. 
you may find yourself grading yourself according to the faith chapter, and I want to discourage that because this chapter is not ultimately about you, and it's not ultimately about these people. It's about a faithful God. He's the ultimate hero of the chapter. He's the hero this morning. Psalm 106 says, verse 6 says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and he redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. This chapter is ultimately about the ultimate hero, God. Don't get bogged down in grading yourself. As we take the supper here, we're going to see how God has lowered or destroyed the ultimate wall and how he's taken, across, taken us across the ultimate sea after we distribute the elements. Let's do that. Stronghold singing songs like that with everything in you, belting and out, even those high notes. Man, I can't sing that high. I don't care. I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, I want to belt those things out because those things are true and they take down. I have strongholds I need taken down and I need things put in check and that worship, man, that, that does it. That gets it done. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The thing that we celebrate and enjoy and remember each week when we take the Lord's Supper is that what Christ did is he lowered the, the infinite wall between us and God. That he, through his work, brought us to God. That he provided dry ground to cross over the infinite sea of distance between us and a holy God. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Talk about a giant. The holiness of God is an insurmountable giant. But Christ, through his work on the cross, leveled that wall. He leveled it to the point that now we can enter the throne room boldly. And we can call him Abba, Father, Daddy. Golly, talk about an awesome work. Let's enjoy that together as we take and eat. Let's enjoy together the ultimate faith hero as we take and drink. The encouragement of solid worship leadership uh, was really quite appropriate this morning um, as we get to close our time. Uh, but I get to, Clint, why don't you come down? Kate, you can come join him. Um, we haven't had an actual praise team since I believe 1994 when it was about nine years before we constituted as a church. Um, but we got people who lead worship and one of the guys who has really blessed this body in worship leadership is Clint Stevens. And um, he, uh, he hasn't just blessed us with his velvety vocal workings, um, but he, is, he has blessed us with 
solid leadership. And I'm not just talking about singing pretty, you guys. I'm talking about the kind of leadership that says, I want to connect the dots. I want to look at the song selection. I want to look at how we organize the song and, and how we put it together musically. I want to make sure I know who's preaching. And the guy who does that week in and week out is this guy. And so um, he, he would like to crawl into a hole right now. He does not want me encouraging him like that in, in front of all of you. But it's fitting. Psalm 9 says, an act of wholehearted worship is recounting the deeds of the Lord. And as an act of my wholehearted worship, I want to recount this guy's deeds this morning. He is willing to spend and be spent gladly on this body. And he has been doing it um, voluntarily for years. He's a deacon. He has a surveying job. And he generally spends 14 to 15 hours a week preparing for corporate worship, whether he's the guy leading or not. And so it is my absolute privilege to announce that we're bringing him on in at least some part-time capacity uh, as a, on our staff as a worship ministry associate. Honestly, it feels a little silly. I wrote a job description for him that's like, here, we're going to go ahead and start paying you at least some to do what you're already doing, and we're going to provide a little more oversight as, as an official um, guy on board. Um, because he's spending and being spent gladly, and, and he's just done it so well, and he's walked in it so humbly. And a lot of the preparation that he does, um, most people don't know. Uh, they just hear that it sounds good on Sunday and that it's encouraging and that it's often very, oftentimes very fitting. And so uh, Clint Stevens is our new worship ministry associate, and we really hope that that grows in, in the future. Um, he, he'll still have his surveying job. It's, he's not quitting his job and coming here or anything like that. Um, but my personal goal is that that would happen eventually, if I'm going to be completely honest. And so um, this is maybe a step in that direction. But I want you all to uh, come up afterwards, um, give them a hug, uh, not just because of this exciting new job opportunity, but because he leads so well, because he leads this body really well in worship, and he, and he leads others. Um, I've, I've been blown away at how God has blessed this body with such a weird high concentration of amazing musicians who really love Jesus and don't care about getting the glory um, for their musicianship. And this guy leads out in that, and it's amazing. And, um, and Kate is a bigger part of that than, than anyone would know, and I think Clint would probably attest to that as well. So together, they work very hard, very diligently on these things and make those sacrifices in a worshipful way. Um, so welcome aboard. Yeah. Uh, welcome aboard. Yeah. It's fitting. All right, well, let's stand, and I will pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we are thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful for time this morning that is a time that makes sense of a lot of the rest of our lives. As, um, as we go out from this place, I pray that we would go out as worshipers who are, who are wholehearted, who fight against the fears that hold us back when the Lord calls us to significant things, and fight against the fears that, that, um, that hold us back when the Lord calls us just to this daily three-mile-an-hour walk. Help us to trust you. Help us to see you as, uh, as high and lifted up, as mighty and as powerful, and uh, that we would um, stay in step with your spirit as we walk. We love you. I thank you for the Stevens. I thank you for this opportunity that's before us, and pray that you would bless Clint and Kate uh, in this as they continue to move really in the manner that they've been moving. Um, bless them and encourage them in that and use them to bless this body accordingly. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.